Hello everyone, this is Rami on with you for another interview about social enterprise and the fires that keep it burning. On this episode, we catch back up with Jeff Adams of Artesian Farms in Detroit. We interviewed him in season one and his hydroponics facility is changed immensely. Jeff has a lot of investor engagement. He's taken on program-related investments, loans, and direct equity. It's been an interesting journey. We've had the opportunity to walk alongside him over these past years in great detail, and I've learned a lot. So, and as usual, we have a song for you at the end of this episode by a Detroit artist. So let's jump over to Luke and see what he has for our fun fuel today. Hi, this is Luke Trombley, and I'm bringing you the fun fuel for this episode. When you think of farming, you typically think of an open field out in the country with tractors and farm animals. But the ancient Mayan people were excellent at farming by hand. Using many systems of agriculture, they were able to feed their people as the population began to rise. In the mountains, they would use what is called step farming. It was called this because the crops would look like giant steps. In swampy areas, they used raised earth platforms that were surrounded by canals. In forests, they used a tactic called slash and burn to create a farming surface, and then dug canals into that area to keep the soil wet for plants. I hope you enjoyed this fun feel. Enjoy the episode. Thanks, Luke. We people are so inventive and adaptive. So amazing. Lots of ways to farm. <laughs> okay, let's keep rolling into the farming discussion with Jeff from Artesian Farms. We were on location, so you might hear some blowers and such in the background. This is part of my interview with Jeff. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks, Robin. I appreciate you uh, inviting me back. Uh, it's been two years since we opened up. It actually was two years on Earth Day. It was oh. April 22nd on uh, 2015 that we, we had our little event here. We had our first prototypes you know, build. And since that time, we've expanded uh, a little slower than what we anticipated, uh, but we are rapidly expanding now. And uh, so it's really exciting right now. Yeah, so now let's catch everyone up. What's the size of the facility now? Okay. Well, the size of the facility, uh, square footage-wise, is uh, 7,200 square feet, of which about 6,000 square feet is dedicated for uh, growing lettuce, kale, and uh, basil. And currently, we have uh, 14... Uh, units activated that are growing those products uh, with uh, 26 more planned and uh, of those uh, another 11 of them are already uh, installed and ready to go we're just waiting for volume now and then we've got another uh, 14 or no I'm sorry another nine units that we will be assembling here in the next uh, probably 60 days. And there's, we know, because I've been talking with you on the side, but there's quite a demand for this hydroponically grown produce, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a real demand for locally grown product, period, whether it's hydroponically grown or traditional farming growing, whatever the case may be. Uh, but anything you read in the culinary world and in the food world, is everything's focused on local and mm -hmm. so you see a lot of the uh, rest or restaurants you know promoting local farmers uh, both urban farmers and the farmers from around you know southeast Michigan mm -hmm. and then you also see uh, retailers the grocers that are promoting the same thing and the, the small regional grocers are more active in that than the large national grocers 
but uh, you know, so it's really you know, kind of interesting to watch kind of grow. And so we fit right into that movement, that local food movement. And there's so many good, you know, beneficial things out of local growing. One, the product's more flavorful, it's more nutritious, it lasts longer in your refrigerator once you buy it, because it's going from our farm to your plate in a matter of a day or two, opposed to when it comes from California, where almost 90% of our lettuce comes from. It's you know, seven to 10 days in, in the distribution channel before it even gets to the grocer, then to your store, so. Yeah, and then let's uh, share what's now being grown here, because you had some ideas, but now what it's basil, kale, and and lettuce, is that? Yeah, yeah that's correct. We're, we're growing three products. It's a, very, it's a very narrow product mix, but it's high volume in a very narrow product mix. Uh, and that way we can meet the, what the demands are for our principal customers, which are grocers. Yeah. Uh, grocers like uh, Westbourne Market, Bushes, Papa Joe's, Whole Foods, those are folks that really promote you know, local and that we've got relationships with to, to buy our product. Um, our lettuce is a mix of lettuce, it's a variety of lettuce, and it kind of changes up based on the season and what goes into it. But it's, you see it, at, you know, in other packages that typically call it spring mix. You know, ours is called Motown mix. And there's <laughs> Motown three, mix. There's three or four types of lettuce that go in there uh, that we harvest. And then we have kale, which is a blue scotch kale, uh, which is a small, more uh, not as bitter uh, flavor of kale. And it's a little easier to work with uh, mm. in your home or in, her, in a chef's you know, kitchen. Oh, uh, it's not the real big you know, kale. And then we got basil. And our basil is by far and away the best kale, or basil rather, that you will ever have. Uh, and everybody raves about it. And the stores can't keep it in stock. We, you know, we you know, two or three pounds of basil a week into a stores and it's gone in two or three days. And because it's a whole different process than what the traditional basil farmers do. We harvest only mm -hmm. the leaf. And so the plant continues to grow and we re-harvest it every single week. And the leaves are anywhere from about half of your hand size to your hand size of what goes, yeah. in, goes into a one ounce package. And what you buy, it's all edible product. Where most basil comes in a package and about a third or more of it is stems. Mm, and, right. uh, yeah. and most of our, especially this time of the year, most of our basil comes from China, Vietnam, Colombia, Venezuela. Really? So it's flying at 40,000 know, 40, feet. In a controlled environment, it's still cold, but it still degrades the product. Yeah. And so it's, if you look at our product next to a, another you know, supplier's product, you, there's just no comparison. Yeah, the basil, I have to admit, now I'm a little enamored looking at the kale right now through the window, but the basil, it almost looks like an artwork. It is the size of your hand, and it's so flavorful. It's almost, it feels, tastes spicy. Mm -hmm. or that's something. what it's supposed to be. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. That's the variety that we use. It's oh, a, okay. It's a, it's a Genovese in style. Oh, uh, so good. Yeah, so. It's so good. So I love what you just said about you decided to grow to meet the demand of uh, your primary customers. I think um, that's such a misstep that a lot of us entrepreneurs can take, me included. <laughs> we go off on one product or service line, and then at some point the pendulum swings back to what's being bought the most and what you can produce, right? Was that a revelation for you or how did you land on that? No, uh, well, there, there kind of, there's two philosophies in, in, in urban farming, you know, and most people that are doing urban farming are growing for a, a very set group of people for a specific reason. Mm. And the other side of it is they're growing for the culinary world. 
And the culinary world is kind of fickle in a way in that they want specialty stuff. All the all the restaurants you see going up in Detroit and whatnot, they yeah. want specialty crackers. They want purple carrots or they want you know this or oh. that type of thing. It's a very narrow niche that you, you don't do a great volume. But, but there are farmers here that do a great job of that because they're catering to the culinary world. Gotcha. Okay, and they and they can that's what they that's what they're focused on. Our focus was on the other side, was to look at the high volume products that are purchased for consumer use, direct to consumer use. And once you get past the tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, which are flowering plants, which we aren't don't work very well in this environment, the next largest purchase is, is lettuce. Gotcha. And kale is kind of a hot product right now. And because we grow basil so in a unique way, just because it's a competitive advantage on that particular product that we just, those are the things that we kind of focus on. There's other things we can grow, and we probably will, uh, once we establish, you know, get our customers up and running with it here. Like spinach, for example, we can harvest spinach. We've done uh, uh, rainbow shard, which is really kind of a, a cool, nice, you know, product, yeah. a real high nutritional value. Um, arugula, which is kind of a real spicy, you know, yeah. mix. And so there's, those are other types of products that we've experimented with, and uh, that we will, at some point in time, probably add when we find the, you know, the right niche and they can make money out of it. There's no sense of growing something to the niche you're not going to make money out of it. Right, so. right. That's so true. You know what? I was remiss. I forgot to mention when we talked about the size of the building. I just want to remind the listeners that um, you you took this building. was a blighted building. Could, could we revisit that just for sure. a second? Yeah, we... Um, in the process of putting this business together, you know, living in the, in the Brightmore neighborhood, I was looking around the area to find a structure that we could... It actually was a, more of an entrepreneurial incubator before it was a farm, as was the thought. But once we got it going, it, it landed on the, this, this vertical farming. Um, so I looked around for different you know, buildings and uh, landed on this one, and it was owned by the company across the street over there. Uh, and uh, so we looked at it. It's really perfect for you know, vertical growing because it's all concrete or block and metal. There's no wood, there's no sheetrock, anything like that that collects water, collects mold. So it's really okay. a perfect, you know, kind of a building for that. Plus, with the long channels, the long rooms, made it perfect for setting up the inventory racks that we use for our, our trays and for our growing units. So we bought the building in uh, the summer of 2014 and renovated it as much as possible and uh, started growing. So I mean, it hadn't been occupied since 1998. Uh, over the course of the looking at what may have been here before, there was. It looked like the last user was uh, like a f uh, fishing lure company. Uh, mm -hmm. But at some point, Massey Ferguson used to have a big plant, a tractor plant right around the corner here. Oh. And a lot of the suppliers around, a lot of buildings around were suppliers that supplied Massey Ferguson for different needs for their for their tractor manufacturing. But that, that business closed in the mid-70s. Yeah. So, and this is really beautiful in here with all this, all the lighting. Uh, there's so many things that we as entrepreneurs go through. What are some of the things that you, maybe you were glad you didn't know in the beginning, <laughs> or the things that you've learned along the way that you could share with someone else that, because your business is what I consider, you need some equipment and capital, a, a large amount up front to get going. And uh, as we've walked along the journey with you, a lot of the capital came in in pieces. and. Sometimes you think that's good, and sometimes you probably needed more up front than we thought, right? Well, I, I think, you know, the kind of the lessons learned was don't underestimate the time it takes from 
when yeah. you're in the infancy to when you're actually productive and then the associated cash requirement for that period. I mean, that's, yeah. And it's, it's difficult to estimate, you know, and so. It's always it's, more. Yeah, it's, it's always all, you always need more than what you think you do. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately that's, you know, uh, we've got just really good financial partners or investment yeah. partners I and mean, have been phenomenal uh, in helping out. So that's kind of one of the things. Um, the other thing is that if it was just farming and just growing and harvesting, the business would be very easy, but the, it's after it's post-harvest that it becomes more complex and uh, more time-consuming because you got distribution involved, you got packaging involved, you have a whole requirement for traceability for you know, some of the retailers. So you got to be able to know when you harvest it, where you harvest it from, when it went into the package, when it went into the cooler, when it came out of the cooler, when it went to the when you know, and you show up at. At a, at a retailer, and it's got to be temperature gauged, so you, you've got to get it there cold and the temperature. So there's just a lot of complexity in the whole food channel that uh, that I really didn't expect. And, uh, yeah, that's and interesting because it's way beyond the growing, right? Yeah. The oh, growing yeah. is its own science, and yeah. then, then the art of the delivery—that's yeah, exactly. a process all yeah. of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The good thing, the easy part of it was the sell part of it. To the get what? The sell part. The selling, the selling part. Okay. The selling part. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you go out. And, you know, I, I met with Randy Parker, who's the produce buyer at at, uh, at Bush's out in Ann Arbor. And he controls 16 stores for buying. The meeting lasted about 10 minutes. Yeah. And it was in. He said, "We're in." And that was it. 10 minutes. I mean, we're in. And so they're, they're our largest customer, and uh, we've got nine of their. Is it 10 now? Nine or 10 of their stores you know, are up and running. We got six more to add, which now that we got some additional volume, we're probably going to add in the next two weeks. Um, so, you know, so it's been really been easy. The same way with with, uh, with Westmore Market, Papa Joe's, all were very, very easy, you know, one, you know, one call closed type deal. Whole Foods, on the other hand, was a different deal because they had much more, uh, much more oriented towards, you know, their supply chain and a lot oh. more complexity in their the process it, of establishing a vendor it, it, and, yeah, that, and, yeah. it's, and it's a national chain so it's understandable yeah. okay this these are things you have to go through with all these national chains but it took it took over a year to get through their their process wow. uh, to, yeah. be, to get on board so yeah and it's been worthwhile I mean, it's worthwhile going there and, and getting it done yeah. so, well, you're a good salesperson, and we don't want to underestimate that. I mean, the products do, products when you look at the product, it's really attractive. It sells itself, but you're a good salesperson. That's a good word, though. I would just want to pause in that for food, food entrepreneurs. The local businesses might be a little bit easier to, as a point of entry, but you still want to seed those that it might take a year because they would buy potentially buy bigger quantities, right? Oh, yeah. But that's a good word for entrepreneurs starting in it. It's like, you know, uh, you know, we're only one Whole Foods store. And that's yeah. it. And we're not in the other five or six that are in Southeast Michigan. And because right now we don't have the volume to be able to handle it. With you know, right. we've already got the commitment from Bushes, but we don't have we don't have a commitment from Whole Foods. But we, if we had it, we would you know, we, we would we would have to add a whole lot more, a lot faster, which means more headcount and stuff like that. Uh, you start talking with places like Kroger or Myers, and now you're into a whole different game. You're talking about a facility that is nothing but their business and yeah. you're talking about a 20 or 30,000 oh. square foot building so until we're you know past the stage here you know it, it doesn't make sense to really you know talk yeah. to the larger ones even though some of the larger ones have contact with us so yeah that 
that balance of oh you gonna get that go okay I'll let him get a phone call here for a minute oh the bathroom right there Okay. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit to um, to some of the staff. You you it was always on your heart to hire some people from the neighborhood that you knew you've lived here for a while, and that was one of the reasons you located here. So um, you've got a couple employees here now. Let's talk about how many employees do you have, and how's that? How have you been able to tranche that in in the middle of building it? Because well, it. The whole the, the vision was to hire local people, 18 to 30 years old that are, that uh, either dropped out of school, had some other difficulties in life, or uh, graduated and didn't go to college and looking for opportunity and for people in the neighborhood. And the three people I have here, two of the three I've known since they were 10 or 12 years old, uh, and the other one is a close friend of the other guy. So uh, it's been you know, it's been worked out well. Uh, it come you know working with. Uh, Folks and you know under-resourced families, you know sometimes it becomes a little bit difficult. A little bit, uh, you know, things happen. Like you know the lady that works for her, she's a young mother, two children. You know, children get sick, she gets sick. You know she doesn't show up for work. I mean, it's things you just you just kind of bear with. You know, to, because that's kind of what our mission is. I mean, if you know it happened consistently, I mean she'd have a hard time having a job somewhere else. You know, right. and, and so so those are kind of things that we have, and we, we, we've got. Uh, we're going to hire uh, a student that's coming back from college for the summer for part-time who's grew up in the neighborhood. So he's going to work here. And then we've got a, a, a Cast Tech intern that, through the University of Michigan that's going to be here working for us uh, this summer, So which will be a big help because right now it's pretty crazy here with the volume so. Yeah, and you're seven days a week here doing all of it from growing and farming seven packed. days a week. <laughs> Farming, right. farming is seven hours, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and there's always something going on here. And, yeah. Uh, so. Those darn plants, they're living things. They're not little robots, huh? Right. <laughs> not, they, they, they grow on their own. They grow fast. They require to be harvested when they need to be harvested. And then, you know, you got things like right now, we got an issue right now that we just harvested, and for some reason, the, we're replanting and the water's not pumping up. So we got to, that's what I was doing in there right now. So just, okay. there's always things you got to just always got to watch, you know. And so even though it's controlled and even though it's it's more dependable than outdoor farming, it still requires attention. Just, yeah. You just can't turn on the water, turn on the light, and walk away. So. All right. Gosh, so what advice would you give somebody who's thinking about going into growing produce, maybe in another part of the world or U.S., uh, in this kind of setting? I think, the it, I think the advice would be to work with somebody that you know has experience and mm. does not just do it on your own. And there's a lot of people out there selling technology to do this, mm. uh, but there's not a lot of people, I mean, there's not a lot of people doing it. Uh, there's more and more people doing it, but uh, it's still, you know, it, you know there's, has its challenges, um, and it takes, if depending on what you're gonna, you know, how you're gonna go to market, it, some, it takes a lot of capital. You know, you know we, we have a lot of capital here. There's other uh, systems that work, like in a, in a shipping container that they've renovated. You know, there's places like that. But even those are expensive, and and they're, if you look at the yield per square foot, they're not nearly as what they are here. Right. And so, you know, we've got uh, uh, the technology and lighting are changing, you know, 
rapidly, so we've got you know, lights here that are you know, kind of the state of the art. Uh, but we keep things relatively simple. I mean, people sell a lot of technology to gauge the water, to do you know the the nutrient mix and stuff like that. You can do all that by hand, and that that employs people instead of instead of you know, tens of thousands of dollars in an elaborate you know technology to do the dosing and stuff like that. We've chosen to use simple dosing measures to you know to employ people. Yeah. And so they have they know all the right operating procedures, they do their work on a daily basis, we know exactly what the range of the nutrients are. So that's a job, you know, or a job or two, you know, so. Yeah, well that's great news. And you're, you're transitioning really beautifully over to something that we talked about before we started the interview is um, the value relationships, not just with your employees, but that's, you said that's one of the things that you really came to understand maybe more since you've opened this business, could we go there for a little bit? Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, I mean, there's, you, you read a lot about, you know, how people get money and how they raise capital and, and, and to do this. And there, there's pros and cons that you hear about, you know, why does this group get money and this group doesn't and you know, all this. And to me, it all comes down to one thing. It comes down to relationships. Everybody that's invested in this farm, I've had a relationship with, Especially the first, especially the first group of people I've had a relationship with for ten years, and it just happened that it was on their heart to be doing something in the social enterprise world with Impact T3, and so that whole group with Jeff Petrick, Don Lee, uh, Jerry Seitzer, you know the whole crew, John Richardson, all those guys I've known for years, and so when I started talking about this and talking to Jeff, you know, he, you know things kind of fit in place. And then from there, I also had a relationship with the two of the other funders, which was Skillman Foundation and the Max and Marjorie Fisher Foundation. I had relationships with them for a number of years. So I had relationships with people that I'd been built on trust so that when I went and talked to people, that they were more willing to listen and some were willing to you know, write the check quicker than others, but they still, we still went through the vetting process, we went through the business plan process, we went through the performance process. And I think people get lost in, you know, I've got a great idea, you got to fund it because yeah. I'm this or I'm that. And that, to me, that's not the way it works. I mean, so true. if you spend time developing relationships with those folks that are in the realm that have access to capital, yeah. and that enables you to get where you want to get to. You know, if I was, you know, I'd shop this around for six months before I even talked to Jeff and those guys. And you know every bank in the, in the town. Oh yeah, we support big business or small business. Yeah, right. You know, right. not startup businesses. You That's don't. right. And so finally, you know, in fact, as Jeff said, you just you spent six months of your time just wasted because they're not going to fund you. Yeah. So I think you know people got to realize that it's more than just a great idea. It's you know you know how you build trust with them and you build trust you know in a varied ways, and the more relationship you have with those folks the more likely you are to have relation you have get funding. And that's also spelled you know, spilled out into the second round of capital as well. Yeah, right. Uh, and some of those relationships um, weren't even relationships I had, but they had relationships with the folks with an impact T three. Uh, or the Schoolman Foundation, or the Max and Marjorie Fisher Foundation. Like they use their network yeah. because of the relationship exactly. they had with you. And you know, it, it's, it's, it's a small world when you run in this, in this social enterprise area. You know, it, it's kind of a small world because, I'll give you an example. Don went to a meeting with Don Lee went to a meeting 
at the Max Marshall Fisher Foundation and sat next to a gentleman by the name of Jamie Jacobs. And the two hit it off and Jamie said, well, I do work on Brightmore. And Don says, well, you know Jeff Adams? And Jamie says, yeah, I know Jeff Adams. You know, I like Jeff Adams. You know, and all things come around. Jamie comes in and becomes a, an investor in the second round of this. So you know, here's relationships that didn't really connect until it connected here. Now, is that coincidence? Mm, I don't think so. That's, sure not, that's not coincidence. That's just our belief. You know, yeah. That it's you know, that happens. That God puts things in our way. Yeah, yeah. That it helps us accomplish things. So I think those are all things. Relationships are just a really, really strong uh, you know, element of get, of raising capital. I think too relationships. Having walked through the investment side with you and several others, there's stuff is just going to go wrong too that you can't plan for. And the relationships, if you can bring them together. If you've maintained the relationship after you've got capital, mm. I see a lot of entrepreneurs say, okay, see you later. I don't need my relationship with you anymore now that I have my money. You've done a really good job about keeping the relationships, keeping everybody included, because stuff just happens like that you can't plan on, and you need those relationships to walk alongside you and come up with more capital, like yeah. in your case, or a lot of these guys have jumped in and lent yeah. their... Uh, their talents and yeah. time too, right? Yeah, I mean, that's all part of the Impact E3 is you know, time, treasure, talent, and uh, the racks in the back of the building here. They the team came down on Saturday and uh, helped assemble them. They came to the racks on the other side of the building. Uh, they came in three weeks ago and assembled those. Uh, Don brought a young guy in yesterday. I gave him some stuff. He took it home. He's going to, he's assembling things that we're going to you know, use for plumbing. So, so, you know, there's all those kind of things that, that play into it. And then just from uh, a standpoint of, of consultation and, and talking mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of sharing different ideas and getting different feedback. Um, and, you know, the one thing that's, that I've kind of found, I, I stress over, I, I have stressed over until the last couple of weeks, is trying to manage cash because you know we raised a lot of capital and we're spending a lot of capital. We spend it fast, and I hesitate to invest in, in you know, invest that cash sometimes in capital because I'm worried about you know what's going to happen three months from now when that you know, it can payroll that, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, and you know that's what keeps me up at night. But the other day, you know, and this these this new group of investors, I mean, they're really really excited and aggressive to get this thing built out and go. And they're telling me, you know, okay, just buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. And I'm going, 60 here, 70 there. All right. And I finally, Don was down here yesterday, I said, John, you know, I'm kind of concerned you know, about this. And he like, he says, hey, we're telling you to spend it. That's right. We're telling you to invest it, invest it, and don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Know? Okay, and I'll, I'll try not to. Yeah. But still, you know, you know, for someone that hasn't had that amount of cash in the bank right. ever in their life, to know. really try to you know, kind of hold on to it and not yeah. really, you know, that's, it's a different mindset than, than those that have managed large you know, you know, amounts of money. One of the investors said, you know, when he said, you know, how much are you can put in, he said, ah, that's not risk. That's not risk. You know, because he's risk. He's risking. He says, when you have to float a bond to do a project, that's risk. That becomes a risk. Yeah. You know, but you know, that's, that's not risk. To me, that's risk. <laughs> well, you know. I think you're touching on something that I think is a timely thing to touch on is this mentality of poverty or abundance. 
it is it's difficult to transition if you've had and that's an extreme way to say it <laughs> I mean to say it's poverty or abundance there's all the range in between but I think it is interesting to make that those spending decisions with big lots of zeros after it when you're feeling responsible about other people's money and but these guys are pros and yeah. they know how to turn a business which yeah. is comforting right yeah, it is and the other side of it is I mean the money's there and it, it's not like it's being misappropriated it's right. it, that's what the money was there for okay right. so it's not like you know like I'm, you know so they gave it to I'm, you I'm off to the Puerto Rico for those for, the, for a vacation <laughs> Right. Of course, plants would never let me do that. Never, never. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I mean, it, I mean, in, so it's comforting. And yeah. you know, one of the guys, Pat, you know, he, he was down here with Jeff a few weeks ago and showed him around. He said, "You know, here's Don." Oh, hi, Don. He says she. Hi, Don. Delivery. Okay. So, anyway, but, but Pat said, "You know," he said, "You're, you're kind of in the turtle mode." I said, "What do you mean the turtle mode?" He said, you know, down here, their neck only stretches so far, and you're in the grass. He said, you, you need to be in the giraffe mode. Mm. You need to be up here 60,000 feet or you know, 26 feet where the giraffe is, you know, and see the big picture. He said, but you got so much going on down here that it's hard to break away from. I need that advice personally. Yeah. Business. It is. <laughs> to work on your business instead of in it. So, well... I don't want to keep you, but I want to thank you so much for taking time to let me come back in. I want to keep the story going. Absolutely. So do I. <laughs> so much to discuss. I like this annual check-in of all of our social entrepreneurs. I learned so much from all of them. It would be fun if this show turns into some type of audio documentary over time. Well, there I go dreaming again. <laughs> okay, let's get to our closing song. From our friends at Assemble Sound in Detroit, this artist has been featured by us before. His name is Estray, and his song is Story to Tell. Until next time, keep those bonfires burning. Yes, I've got a story to tell.
I promise you that you gon' remember my name Follow me to where I'm headed Despite the darkness from which I came Yes, I've got a story to tell It might be a wise decision If you gather around and listen Pay attention, 